0: To this special bonus episode of Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Evie Kat Wong.
1: and I'm Varshni Kashyap. Evie and I are summer interns for ICPSR Membership and Communications, and we are so honored to guest host this episode of Data Brunch.
0: In a moment, you will hear from three Singapore Management University students, Matthew, Verity, and Naja the ICPSR 2021 research paper winners, interviewed by ICPSR's very own Catherine Lavender, a data project manager at the National Archive of Computerized Data on Aging or NACTA. The trio earned first place in the undergraduate competition with a paper titled, Is Trait Self-Esteem a Resilience Factor Against Daily Stressors? A Multi-Level Analysis. Their paper uses data from the midlife in the United States, Midas-2, and the Daily Stress Project.
1: Okay, now on to the interview with ICPSR's 2021 undergraduate research paper competition winners.
2: Welcome, everyone. I'm Katherine Lavender, the data project manager for NACTA. NACTA is the National Archive of Computerized Data on Aging at ICPSR at the University of Michigan and is funded by the National Institute on Aging. NACDA's mission is to advance research on aging by helping researchers to share and discover a broad range of datasets for secondary analysis. We acquire and preserve data relevant to gerontological research, kind of like a data library, curating the data as needed to promote effective research use. And we share the data with the research community free of charge. By preserving and making available the largest library of electronic data on aging in the United States, NACTA offers opportunities for secondary analysis on major issues of scientific and policy relevance. You can find out more about NACTA and ICBSR by visiting nacta-aging.org. I'm here today with our guests Matthew from Tang Tuck Seng Hospital and Verity and Nadia from Singapore Management University. They're the 2021. ICBSR undergraduate research competition paper winners. They earned first place with a paper titled, Is Trait Self-Esteem a Resilience Factor Against Daily Stressors? A Multi-Level Analysis. The paper uses data from the Midlife United States series. And we're gonna talk about some of the collections they use. And uh, I just wanna thank everyone for joining us today. Okay.
3: Thank you for having us, Catherine.
2: So how, um, why don't you all talk about how did you get involved with your research?
4: Um, I, can, I can help us answer. So the three of us actually were actually undergraduate psychology researchers at the Daily Experience, Effective Wellbeing and Neuropsychology Lab at Singapore Management University, so otherwise known as DAWN Lab. We were under the supervision of Dr. Andre Haitanto, and the three of us got to work on many projects, including the one that we talked about just now, which we submitted for the ICPSR competition. Yeah. Great, thank
2: you. So, um, can you talk about how did you discover Midas?
3: Ooh, I think Nadia can. can. yeah, sure. Yeah.
5: So, um, our so library like said we're under the supervision of Dr. Andre Hatanto. So, um. Most of the labs research with Midas started off with him because um, basically he has been always been working closely with Midas data, um, the various parts of Midas data. So Midas 2, Midas Refresher, um, like the baseline studies, the daily diary studies, the cognitive studies, and so on and so forth. Um, so with our advisor being very familiar with Midas, um, he kind of encouraged us to also explore things that we could analyze that were interesting to us in Midas. So when we saw that the ICPSR had this opportunity this competition we were really interested in seeing what we could look at um and also because for all of us basically we are interested in well-being various aspects of well-being so for Verity she's really interested in like effective well-being as an outcome whereas for Matthew he's more interested in looking at like resilience factors that could help in Buffering against like negative impacts on well-being. And then for me, I'm very interested in like daily stress processes, be it in relation to well-being or other factors. So having the three of us come together on this project was very complementary. And we each brought our own strengths and kind of content expertise, very low-level content expertise, given that we are very early career researchers. Um, but we kind of played on to each other's strengths. And the Midas dataset set being very rich basically afforded us a lot of opportunities to just explore. And having the variables that it has, for example, self-esteem, daily well-being, uh, daily stressor exposure really just allowed us to tap onto our interests. And that's how this specific project started, I guess. Um, in our lab, we've also looked at a lot of other variables using the Midas data. Um, but I guess this would be the most relevant one for today's podcast.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's great. It's so helpful to have an advisor, um, to, you know, just be a resource and a mentor. And, and then, you know, you hear so much about group projects being stressful, um, in life in general, not just in college, but, you know, uh, later on too. Um, and so it's great that you all were able to bring your strengths together for this project. And um, yeah, MIDAS is a wonderful resource. And uh, so it sounds like you didn't need to seek out any other data um, collections uh, aside from MIDAS uh, when you were looking into this. Um, But if there are other data collections that you think about that you'd like to suggest to people researching similar uh, topics, uh, please feel free.
5: (laughs) Excuse me. Yes. Another data set that I've seen people look at, in addition to MIDAS, would be the Health Retirement Survey, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is on ICPSR as well. Yeah, so um, I've seen a lot of studies that analyse both and kind of compare whether the results are the same, uh, replicable over the two samples, so on and so forth. Um, So I guess if people are interested in looking at variables that that exist across both studies, that's definitely something that would be helpful. Like it would yeah. be interesting to look at how the samples differ or how they're similar and like it's also always more helpful to have more data yeah thank you yes so the health and retirement study they
2: host their own data but we definitely help make it discoverable and um we're all under the institute for social research umbrella so um when we're back in in the in the building we'll be neighbors to them physically so um <clears throat> but anyway, uh so why don't you talk about the central objectives of your recent work?
3: Okay. Um so for the central okay, so the central objectives of our recent work was that, you know, research suggests that self-esteem could be a resilience factor for things like major stressors, uh things that are you know, instances where it's very stressful or like there are traumatic situations or unfavorable ones. Um, but little research has been done on the, um, on the stress buffering role of self-esteem in the context of daily stresses and daily stresses are more, you know, um, smaller, I, I guess they are like more chronic problems and smaller issues that you experience throughout the day, like missing your bus, you know, forgetting your keys, um, on the way to work and, and so on and so forth. So we we wanted to see how, we wanted to see whether self-esteem could uh, moderate the relationship between daily stresses and effective reactivity, um, and uh, at least for the ICPSR study. Um, later on, we, after the, uh, after the ICPSR study, we actually continued to observe. Uh, we ran our own studies to explore any c- possible cross-cultural differences between uh, the United States and Singapore in terms of the data set that we collected.
2: That sounds really interesting. That's great. Uh, so from your work with MIDAS <clears throat> and looking into you know, how trait self-esteem was measured and um, I read in your paper uh, the idea about a stressor day. Um, how did you use information from your research with Midas in this um, this research you did after the fact? In your primary research basically.
3: So um, what I guess what we did was we ran a replication study of Uh, the data that we used in the ICPSR um, daily stressor study. Wait, sorry, hold on. Um, Yeah, and we decided to try and run that replication study in the context of uh, Singaporean college students. Uh, So we essentially followed uh, the the study that was done uh, in ICPSR uh, in the same way in Singapore, where we followed uh, participants over the course of about a week collecting uh, their data as well as their uh, effective reactivity and whether or not they experienced uh, stressful situations throughout the day.
5: Yeah, so just to add on more to what Matthew said. So this um, other police primary data set that we generated um, was actually a very large scale in terms of having many variables. Study conducted by our lab. So because our lab um, looks primarily at daily experiences, it's uh, obviously very natural for us to run daily diary studies all the time. So we currently have data from two waves of the daily diary study. So similar to how MIDAS has the MIDAS2 and MIDAS refresher, we also have two um, separate unique samples of daily diary data. Like what Matthew said, ours is with an undergrad sample. Um, so not as impressive as MIDAS, um, but Of course, it does give us some preliminary data if we're trying to compare like cross-cultural things. So for example, comparing MIDAS to our own data, we can look at US versus Singaporean kind of context. Although it does have to be qualified with the fact that MIDAS data is across the the adult lifespan, whereas for ours, it's really restricted to an undergrad sample. And of course, there are other differences like the year. Um, So there's always things to take into account, like temporal effects. But other than that, our daily diary studies was run very similar to MIDAS in that it wasn't just restricted to self esteem and daily effective reactivity, kind of thing. Um, it really looked at a very wide range of variables, of which this subset was just a small selection.
2: That sounds great. So you, you know collected some other health measures and other social measures um, in this primary research collection. Well, you know, the life course uh, doesn't have an age limit really. Uh, So we do focus on aging populations, but really the long run is the goal, right? And youth is a part of that. So um, can you talk some more about your major findings and also some of the challenges you came across in the research process?
3: Okay so um for the ICPSR paper submission uh, we found significant interactions between uh self esteem and stressor, stressor exposure for negative effect but not for positive effect um even after controlling for demographics for participants enrolled in the Midas 2 and Midas 2 daily stress subproject However, um, these interactions uh, became non significant after controlling for quality of life and uh, other, and the big five personality factors. Um, After the ICPSR submission uh, for our replication study with uh, with our Singaporean sample uh, containing college age students, uh, we found that well, self-esteem actually did not moderate the relationship between stress exposure and daily effect. Um, and what we did uh, for our paper was we also conducted an internal meta-analysis aggregating all of our findings uh, from both the MIDAS paper as well as the two uh, primary samples that we collected in uh, Singapore. And uh, we also unfortunately found that there was no um. That self esteem did not moderate that relationship between uh, daily stress exposure and daily effect. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, our findings, um, once aggregated, you know, uh, and taking all of this together, run contrary to the stress buffering, the the literature surrounding the stress buffering roles of self esteem. I think just
4: to add on, sorry, just to add on a little bit. Um, we found that it became non-significant after we controlled for proxies of quality of life. So what this kind of showed us was that um, it seems that these effects that might have been found in the past might be due to quality of life rather than self-esteem as a buffer. So in the past, um, some studies didn't control for quality of life, and when we controlled for it, we didn't find what we expected to find. So we believe that this may be one of the reasons why our findings was non-significant yeah so it's still kind of interesting to compare her compare our findings with the previous findings that even though they don't seem to be aligned they kind of can be can be explained by the controlling like by controlling for quantity of life yeah definitely
2: and I think that's the value of um, secondary data use, um, you get to challenge existing perspectives and sometimes what you find goes along with what's already out there. Sometimes it doesn't. And I I think that, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, having the higher trait self-esteem doesn't necessarily make a stressful day easier. Um, and you know this is not based on any research I can quote, but you know, listening to the radio, um, w- I once heard that um, the average person might have something like four wins in a day, and a win could be anything from like eating your favorite lunch to you know you had a successful presentation or something like that, minor things to you know more significant things, but four wins on average, and so it's like it would be interesting to have research around how people perceive, um, you know, it, the different stressors actually like, cause, you know, I think what we're saying is losing your keys is more stressful to one person than another person. Um, and how, how do we, how do we measure, I don't know how people control their stress. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about quality of life, it is a huge, it's a huge factor. So I think it's very important work that you're doing and you know, any step in, in that direction is a good step.
3: Yes, definitely. And um, so like major stressors, I think people experience like major stressors in terms of things like making rent, for example, and, and, and those things you know, hang over people's heads all the time. Whereas you know, we are also interested to see how like smaller stressors could affect someone in their day-to-day life and you know, we find that um, looking at some of these things would be relatively important, especially if we understand how this could impact someone's well-being in the future or in their daily lives.
2: For sure. Having shelter is a basic need and it would be a huge stressor not to be able to meet a basic need. So that's definitely a factor. Um, and I think it's great that you balanced out your research for that, and like you said, it kind of explains why it doesn't match. So, um, what advice would you give to others out there trying to use data for multi-level analysis, or trying to use MIDAS data, or just any advice for other researchers who maybe, you know, at any level, just getting started versus, um, you know, maybe a new perspective that. Uh, researchers in the field established might consider?
5: Um, maybe I'll answer this. So, um, I think one major thing is that if people are trying to look at like daily, diary kind of data, or in fact, any kind of data that is dynamic or temporal in nature, where you have multiple data points for like a single person, I think that it's really important to have a proper conceptual and statistical understanding of the kind of data that you're working with. And then this also lends itself to having a proper understanding of the kind of analyses that are appropriate for this kind of data. Because this kind of data is very, very rich. and But it also comes with a lot of complications in analysis. Um, I think most undergrads would not be equipped to deal with this kind of dynamic data just because it's not taught in an undergrad level. Um, even for I think even some postgraduate, so for example, masters or PhD students, it might not, it may or may not be covered at their graduate level statistics classes. Um, and even if it is covered, like it might just be like a one lesson kind of thing. But the thing is that this kind of data can hide a lot of patterns. Um, when you try to disentangle effects that happen within the person, as well as effects that happen between people, so differences between people, um, as compared to like differences for the same person from day to day, or from time point to time point, what, however small or large your interval is. Um, the patterns can sometimes be opposite. Uh, so if you're kind of looking at the wrong level of analysis, or if you're aggregating your data in a certain way, it might mask interesting patterns or more accurate patterns that you should be looking at instead. So I think like the important thing is to know what research question you're asking and then know what is the appropriate level of analysis for that. So that applies not just to like daily diary data, but it also applies to other things. For example, people studying groups versus individuals. So for example, in like industrial organizational psychology uh, or like studies where you want to look at things like teamwork or group things, it's really important to know where your level of analysis lies. And then not just that, but then once you know that, then how do you properly analyze the data, especially since this is something that may not be taught in much detail. So I think that as researchers, we do have a responsibility to produce research that is accurate, um, not just because we want to be right, but because your research hopefully does have impact on people. So we do owe it to consumers of research to kind of ensure that our research is valid, trustworthy. And the first step towards doing that is ensuring that you treat your data in the way that it should be treated.
2: Thank you. But I think that's great advice. so as far as uh, as far as key takeaways from that, I'm going to say definitely reading, and you know having some kind of quality review. Uh, you have a team here, so you were able to discuss and check each other's work, and you have your mentor. That's another thing is uh, network. You know, reach out to your community, and 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 like you said, have a good foundation of understanding of what you're researching. That's great.
5: Yeah, I guess not just an not just an understanding of like what you are looking at to research, but also an understanding of the actual structure of the data that you're working with. So you may have a specific research question, but your sometimes you're, the structure of your data just doesn't answer the question, or it might be able to answer it in a very different way. And if you analyze it, if you interpret it in the wrong way, it might give you misleading results or opposite results or something like that. And I guess on that point that you brought up about networks and community, It's not just about the people at your institution, for example. Uh, I think during our time as younger researchers, we have sometimes reached out to, for example, professors at other universities who don't even know us, Um, but they are experts in whatever content area or statistical area. And oftentimes, they are very willing to help out. They may not always reply very quickly because, of course, professors are very busy, but they're usually very willing to answer a few questions, point us in the right direction. So I guess for like other early career researchers listening in, um, don't be afraid to seek out help when you need it, not just from the people close to you, around you, but also people um, like in your field who you don't even know. They're usually very willing to help as long as you're like nice about it and you give enough details for them to help. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I think that's wonderful um, that you would reach out to people. It's, you know, it's something that we've heard other researchers recommend too, that, you know, it takes time, but people who are really invested in finding out more um, to help people in those topics, they, they will usually respond um, and uh, point you at least in the right direction. So that's great. So, um, I'm curious, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, and then we'll um, kind of start to wrap up. But uh, what stats package did you use?
5: Um, So in our lab, we usually use R. Uh, So R is an open source language. Um, Most younger researchers would be familiar with it. Um, Of course, other labs might use things like Python. Uh, We don't really use Python in our lab. We usually use R. Um, Some of the other lab members, those who may not be so comfortable with working with syntax or programming directly, they might use um, other open source, soft- open source software such as JESP. So JESP is basically um, a point and click interface, but it is built on R. Uh, it's also free. So for people starting out in research who are not very comfortable with programming, I would highly recommend that they try out Jest. Otherwise, um, at our institution, um, most of the undergrads are actually trained in SPSS, which is the traditional software used by psychologists, I guess, older psychologists especially. Um, so for people who are maybe looking to break into research and they want to know like what kind of skills they should be working on, I guess for us, we would suggest R and SPSS. Um, but the issue with SPSS is that, of course, it's not free. You need a license to use it. Your institution may or may not have student licenses available, um, but it definitely is a useful skill, especially when working with um, some of the more traditional um, advisors who may not be comfortable moving to newer so-called uh, software such as R. Although R is <laughs> really new, but we have encountered cases where in certain labs, um. The, the lab directors insist on using older software, like SPSS and M plus. So of course these <laughs> skills are still important. Thank you. I think that's great. Yes. Uh,
2: if you, I can't remember when, let me think exactly. Uh, you know, ICPSR uh, and NACTA. the way that we release the files, we call it the full product suite. And it used to just include SPSS, SAS, data and then ASCII data and syntax in each of those packages. And um, I was working at ICBSR when we first began retrofitting studies to include R and when it became a part of the active full product suite that um, that we created. And, and so you're right, it's not new but it's still new to a lot of people. And um, so I really appreciate you sharing that, that's great. And um, I'm gonna, you know, put in a, what do they call it? Shameless promotion here. If you have syntax you want to share from this project, you can share it through our open aging repository, the NECTA OAR. And um, you can also link it to your related publication and other people can use it. And, um, you know, that increases the potential for more data reuse. Uh, So something to consider. And it's fine that it's an R, you know, as as long as it's well-documented, that's all we ask. So, uh, okay. I think that this will be our last question and, uh, you know, each of you can respond. um, And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what excites you about being a researcher right now.
3: I think um related, I'll go first, I guess. So I think related to the conversation that we're having just now, um, I think that it's an incredibly exciting time to be a young researcher now. Um, there are many new technologies which can help everything from like data collection to statistical analysis. And uh I think we really observe, we have really observed um as you know, listening to stories from our advisors over time that barriers going into research have been gradually coming down um and you know it allows and all these technologies and and uh, all this technology now allows us to you know have effective uh, research practices and collaboration between researchers uh and allow us to be open to resources that we would not otherwise have had the opportunity to tap on before you know like before the age of the internet and you know and, and stuff like that so i i really think that um It's very exciting to be a researcher now and um, at the same time, I think um, researchers like us are looking at the current state of things like uh, within academia and we're looking about areas that, you know, we could try and contribute to, you know, improve um, the status uh, of how things are like in research and academia right now. So, yeah, uh, Verity.
0: I think Nadia can go first. She was ready to (laughs) take over.
5: Uh, So just adding on to what Matthew was saying, I guess for me, one of the very exciting things about being an early-stage researcher is really being able to challenge norms. I think when you are someone who has been in the area, industry, job, whatever, not just in research, but anywhere, if you're someone who's been there for very long, you get very entrenched in traditions and what you are used to, habits, those kinds of things, which may not always be the best best way to go about doing things. So it might be inefficient or certain things might be outright wrong. So for example, in psychology and in broader science, we do know that like 5, 10 years ago, there was a very huge replication crisis. And I think for us, being early stage researchers who started our undergrad, degrees after the replication crisis, the kind of education that we got was very, very different. There's a lot more emphasis on ensuring that you really have a strong understanding of statistics and research design and those kinds of things, which was not really emphasized last time, or it may have been taught, but not re- but kind of overlooked. Um, so for us, being part of the generation that really is very critical of these kinds of things. It's very exciting to be able to produce research that will hopefully be able to stand the test of time more strongly. I'm sure that in the future, even our sample sizes now will look tiny in comparison. Um, I'm sure people will criticize what we are doing now also for being outdated or not good enough, not strong enough. But it's always nice to be part of a group that manages to push for improvement, I guess, for me. So especially for me, as I move on to my PhD, where I hope to specialize more on quantitative side, um, advances in stats, advances in methodology, like what Matthew said, um, is really something that excites me. And for me personally, I appreciate that my advisors are always open to me challenging them um, when their beliefs might be outdated or their beliefs might be um, unfounded or wrong. They're always open to me um, kind of correcting them of course with evidence not not just like off the top of my head um with like proper mathematical proof or like some form of references or citations they're always receptive to it and i think that creates a very healthy environment for younger researchers to grow um and it just is a very positive and nurturing environment that i feel can produce a very strong generation of future researchers
4: i I think for me, I kind of agree with both of them, honestly. I, um, I think technology has really made researching so fun nowadays because I've, I've gotten to work with profs from around, like, around the globe. So I've, even though I'm in Singapore, I've worked with profs from Australia. And this has been made possible thanks to technology. And I've been able to attend conferences and share my work through online platforms. And this is something I probably might not have been able to do if I had to fly there physically to attend the conference because I still have my classes to go to, right? Yeah, and I think it's very exciting um, how much more connected our world is now and how people can people from all around the world at, in different cultures have having different experiences can come together and contribute to one piece of work at the same time. Yeah, and I think also because of this interconnectedness, we have improved at a very fast pace. I think uh, this alludes to what Nadia said as well. I think now there's a push for open science and um, I think it's a, it's a very good push. And everyone is, I wouldn't say everyone, but a lot of younger researchers are realizing how important it is for uh, open data, open materials, open scripts. For, to make your research reproducible, right? Yeah, and I think um, this is to me it's very encouraging because I can see that researchers are coming together and like trying to push for uh, push the field to improve. Yeah. And I think technology has helped to speed that up as well. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much. I, I think your answers are very inspiring um and I I think it's been just wonderful to talk with each of you today about this and thank you so much for submitting your paper for the competition I, I think um you know just putting yourself out there it takes courage um even if you like what you're doing even if you are sure you're doing it well and so I think it's great uh that you've you know, um, started doing this work and that you continue to think about how to improve it and that, you know, you agreed to talk with us to help other people learn from you. It's wonderful. So thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thank you for having us on and uh, it was a pleasure to share our experiences uh, with you.
2: Great. So, um, you can find the links to studies we reference by viewing the description and content below. And if you have questions or ideas, please email us at icpsr-nacda at umich.edu. And we're gonna wrap up for today. So um, thanks again. And uh, hopefully we see even more from you all in the future. And again, if you have data or syntax to share, please consider sharing them through us.
1: It was fascinating to hear how controlling for the study participants' quality of life influenced results contrary to the existing literature on self-esteem and stress.
0: Definitely. I was very surprised to hear that the results from the replicate study indicated that self-esteem did not have a significant stress-buffering effect.
1: For everyone listening, have you been writing research papers for class? Undergrad and graduate students can win up to $1,000 for submitting papers on any topic using data from the ICPSR General Archive or thematic collections. We will include a submission link in our episode notes. Before we sign off, we wanted to remind you to save the date. The next ICPSR Data Fair will take place September 19th to 23rd, 2022. More details at icpsr.umich.edu. I'm Varshini.
0: And I'm Evie. Thanks for joining us for this bonus episode of Data Brunch. We're looking forward to season three, which starts in September of 2022.
2: Yay, you did it. Good job.